pop quiz. First week we were in Ezra, second week we were in Haggai, third week we were in Ezra. Anybody want to guess where we are this morning? Turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai is the uh, not the last book in the Bible, not the second to the last book in the Bible. It's the third to the last book in the, sorry, not the Bible, in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, just start backing up if you've got a, if you're still old school like this. We're going to read Haggai chapter 2. Remember where we are in this story. We're looking at when God called the Jewish people who were in exile. The Babylonians had taken them all out of their country, taken them to another country. Now the Babylonians have been overthrown by the Persians the Persians have said, hey, anybody who wants to go back can go back, right? If the Babylonians may force you to move, you're welcome to go home. And God has called the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem specifically to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the temple to the Lord their God. And we looked at how they originally went back and they started and they were really excited. And then the government came in and there was bribes going on and people, people stopped them and they quit. They quit for over 15 years, 15, 17 some odd years until Haggai shows up on the scene and encourages them to get moving again. And they do. And we looked last week at kind of where that went. They actually finished the temple because God shows up in this incredible way. The government that had been opposing them all of a sudden does a complete 180. The king himself gets involved and says, hey, let him build the temple. Stop harassing him. In fact, you need to pay for it. You need to pay to build the temple. You need to pay to maintain the temple. And if anybody gives them any trouble, I want you to execute them. Let them build this temple to their God. So we are going to pick up now in Haggai chapter 2. We're back in the middle of their building. And I want you to listen to what Haggai tells them. I'm going to read Haggai chapter 2, the first nine verses. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So do you remember the first week we looked at this story when they they first come back in the late 530s BC, this, the second year of King Darius, this is 520 BC, about 17 years before this, when they had first come back and they started and they just laid the foundation, you know, there's just rubble there. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar just knocked everything over. If he could burn it, he burned it. If he could melt it down, he melted it down. If it was made of stone and he couldn't do anything else to it, he just had him knock it down. The city is just rubble everywhere and they go through and they clear out and they rebuild the foundation for the temple 
and they rebuild the altar where the original altar stood. And everyone's so excited and they're cheering and they're, this is great. But there are people there who saw the temple as kids. It's only been decades since the last group got deported and the temple was destroyed. There's people there in their 50s and 60s who saw the temple. They'd gone to Solomon's temple and they look at the foundation that they've laid and they realize, oh, this is nothing like the original temple. You know, it's like your house burns down and you're going to rebuild it. And so you get the plans and you get out there and, and the guys, they lay the foundation of your house, you know, and you look at the foundation and you realize, oh, all we can build back is the garage. We're going to live in the garage because Solomon was at the height of Israel's power. Israel was the major power along the Mediterranean coast. They controlled the entire western half of what we call the Middle East, and the Assyrians controlled the other half. They will eventually meet, and the Assyrians will win. Israel was at the height of its power. The temple was incredible. These guys look at what they're building and realize, oh, we're just building the garage. We, we can't afford. We don't have the resources. We can't build back the whole thing. And now they've started up again 17 years later. And they're realizing the same thing. They're starting to stack the, the blocks together. They're starting to get the wood and build it. Remember what we read last week? The governor's like, wow, these guys, they are building hard. This is going up. It's, you know, it, it's two courses of stone and a course of timber, and they are, they are working hard. But we're now a month into it. His first prophecy comes at the beginning of the sixth month. He says, go in the woods, go in the hills and get some wood. They do that. And then we're told at the end of the month, on the 24th day, they start building. We're now a month later. We're on the 23rd, 21st day of the next month. And God comes to them and says what I imagine everyone is thinking. This is it. This is what we moved. They have moved from Babylon and places of civilization and culture to the middle of nowhere. Jerusalem is a backwater. Again, the only thing Jerusalem is good for in the Persian Empire is a place to stop and water your horses and camels on your way to Egypt. It's nothing. It's a wasteland. This is what we moved back here for? was to build this little rinky-dink temple. I want to read you. This is part of the description of Solomon's temple. So, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before, Solomon inlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He paneled the main hall and covered it with fine gold and decorated with palm trees and chain designs. He adorned the temple with precious stone. He overlaid the ceiling, the beams, the door frames, the walls, and the doors of the temple with gold. He carved cherubim on the walls. He built the most holy place, and he overlaid the inside with 600 talents of fine gold. The gold nails weigh 50 shekels. He overlaid the upper parts with gold. A a talent is about 75 pounds. The Holy of Holies is a 30 by 30 by 30 room, and he overlaid it with 600 talents. That's 45,000 pounds of gold that he used in covering. It says in other places, like it, it has, there, there's wood structures and all, but you can't actually see any wood 
when you look at the outside or inside of this, because he's covered all the wood with gold. 45,000 pounds of gold. Ezra tells us, when they come back to build the temple the first time and everyone's excited, they bring with them 1,000 pounds of gold. And then you think it's still sitting there 17 years later? The cedar's not. We know that. They took the cedar and used it in their eye. You think they've got 1,000 pounds of gold that's been sitting there for 15 years? Perhaps you have a more generous view of human nature than I do. Personally, I suspect there's not a big pile of 1,000 pounds of gold still waiting there. I suspect it is somewhat less. Solomon used 45,000 pounds of gold when he built this temple. They had at the beginning 1,000, and they probably don't have that much anymore. When Solomon finished and dedicated the temple, he sacrificed 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats to dedicate it to God. Do you remember from last week when they finished this? And we're not there yet in Haggai's prophecy, but we read it last week in Ezra. When they finish it, what will their dedication ceremony be? 100 cattle, 600 sheep, and 12 goats. Solomon dedicated 142,000 animals when he built this temple, and they will dedicate 712. And they are looking at this, and they are thinking, what? This is what we came all this way for? It takes months to get from where they were all the way up and all the way back to Jerusalem. This is it? We're building a garage to house the Lord. Put yourself in the story. I mean, imagine, if you're below 50, like all you know is the stories about Solomon's temple. If you're over 50, you actually saw it. How do you feel? As you know, you are building something that is a tiny, tiny fraction of what Solomon had done. When Elizabeth Elizabeth and I joined Wycliffe in the summer of 1994, um, we finally hit West Africa in January of 98 because I had to do a year of linguistic school. Elizabeth was working as an accountant. We had to raise money. You do all these things. All those years you're planning, we are going overseas to translate the Bible. We've sold everything we have. We're moving to where the mosquitoes can kill you. We're taking our nine-month-old to where the mosquitoes can kill you. Because God has said so. Because we are obeying him. We are going to translate the Bible. And so we get to Cote d'Ivoire. And the, the center is like, if you've ever been to Europe, the first floor will be office buildings, and then there'll be apartments above it. You know, in America, we tend to like either, it's either apartments or it's offices. And in Africa, it's like Europe. They do them together. Same for Wycliffe. The first floor, we had a building. It was offices and there were apartments. We were staying in these apartments and outside the building, it's, it's all gravel parking lot with some, you know, some overhangs you can park your cars under. And there's this area. There's a storage room. It's about the size of a two car garage. It's just a freestanding building. And while we're there early on, we get in a shipload of Bibles. Like, like the Bibles have arrived at the port. They've come through because a translation team has finished the New Testament. It takes about 20 years. It takes about 20 years of your life from the time you hit the ground, you start learning the language, you move to the village, you start to finish the New Testament. It takes around 20 years. And a translation team had finished a New Testament. 
And this is just a, a huge, joyous celebration. And the truck is coming with the Bibles. And this was before print on demand. So, you know, you have to print several hundred at a time. But we don't print a lot because we, we never give away Bibles. Because if you give them away, the next day if you go to the market and order anything, whatever you ordered will be wrapped in pages of the Bible. Because it's free paper. So we charge them what it costs for a meal. It's about a dollar when we were there. You know, what, is that? what does it cost to buy a chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A now? Like six bucks? Something like that? that that's, what, that's how we price a Bible. Wherever we are, it, it's the cost of lunch. Um, now, these folks tend to live hand to mouth. So they're probably not going to eat lunch if they buy the Bible. Okay? But they're also not going to starve. They're still going to eat dinner. Um, so we're getting in like three or 400, whatever the a small print run is. I don't remember the group. It's probably around 30,000 people. We've got, let's say, 400 Bibles. And the truck comes in and there's, there's all these boxes, right? They've got like 10 or 20 Bibles each in them, so they're not too heavy. And we're all excited and we're down there and I've never done this before. And we're going to unload the truck and, and they go and they open up the storage room because that's what the storage room is for. We're going to keep the Bibles until we take them up country to this dedication. And they open up this two-car garage and it is full of Bibles. It is full of 35 years of Bibles that we translated and no one wanted. It's just a garage stacked with boxes of Bibles. And I'm taking boxes off the truck and I'm stacking them up. And I'm thinking to myself, in a couple weeks, I'm going to stack all these back on the truck. We're going to drive that truck up country. How many of these boxes am I going to stack and put back in the garage when we're done? Imagine that you spent 20 years of your life in a village in West Africa. You raised your kids there. You had to send them off to school because there's no schools. You had to send them across the ocean to go to college. You see them now and your grandkids once every five years. And you did all that because God called you to. You obeyed him. You went. You translated the Bible. They printed it. And out of 30,000 people, maybe 100 were willing to spend a dollar to get a copy for themselves. How do you feel about that? Because that's how these guys feel. And God comes to them. Don't miss that. God knows. God comes to them and says what everyone's thinking, and presumably no one's saying out loud, because we're all working, we don't want to discourage each other. Like, any of you who know what the old temple was like, what does this look like to you? Doesn't it look like nothing? Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. It looks like a garage compared to the palace that Solomon built. It looks like nothing. And what? What does God say to them? Because remember, there is no promise of success. When God calls you to go translate that Bible, he does not promise that the whole language group is going to become Christian. He does not promise that the church is going to love it. There were churches in these language groups. Lots of them didn't want the Bible because the pastor wanted to preach in French to show how educated he was. And you just spent your life on something that now looks like nothing. What does God say to them? There's no promise of success. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. And work. Keep at it. 
Keep building. Why? I am with you. There is no promise of success. There is absolutely a promise of God's presence. There is a promise of blessing. Listen to what he says in the next verse. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. This is 520 BC. They came out of Egypt 900 years ago. And God said, I made you a promise 900 years ago. I'm still keeping it. God never reneges on his word. He never says something and it doesn't happen. I promised this 900 years ago. I'm still at work. God says, my spirit is with you. Don't be afraid. Keep working. I know it seems like nothing. Keep working. And that is almost always where the stories end in the Bible. I mean, you read the story over and over again in scripture. The letters, Paul's letters, Peter's letters, they're, they're writing to people in trouble. They're struggling. There's issues. And they always say, keep at it. Paul will say, look, whatever God's given you to do, do it as best you can because it is God who has called you to it and you're serving him. You're not serving whoever. When you translate the Bible, you're not translating the Bible because those people asked you to, although hopefully they did. And you're not translating the Bible because you have some future idea of how great it's going to be. You're obeying because God called you to obey. God says, I am with you. This is part of my plan. Keep at it. That is almost always where the story ends. And this time, God does something that he so rarely does. He peels back the veil to the future. And he tells them what's going to happen. In a little while, he says, oh, wow, am I going to do stuff? (laughs) I am going to shake the world. I am going to shake the nations. What is desired by all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. You notice how many times he talks about glory. Did you see this house in its former glory? It's, this looks like nothing, doesn't it? Oh, you just wait. You just wait. There is a day coming when I am going to fill this house with glory. It's all mine. God says, the gold is mine and the silver is mine. Solomon put 45,000 pounds of gold in that temple. I do not know anywhere in the scriptures where God said, that gold is mine. I take it and I'm going to use it. These guys, I don't know how much gold they put in, but it was 1,000 pounds at most if they kept all of it for 15 years. And God says, that is mine and I will use it. I am going to fill this house with glory. The glory of this house, this little garage that you are building, it will be so much greater than the glory of the former house. Remember, the the temple is the tabernacle as a permanent building. Remember the tabernacle? We talked about that. People, they live with God in the garden, but they won't obey him, so they break. That relationship is broken, and now people can't be near God. It's like radiation, It's like going into an atomic reactor. If you go in God's presence, you're going to die. Just like if you go into the chamber in a nuclear reactor, you're going to die. You're not made to take that kind of power. It will kill you. We can't be with God. It will kill us. And so God has Moses make the tabernacle, this big tent with these different rooms, and the room in the center is the most holy place, and that's God's room. It's his throne room. He's there. When Moses finishes it, that giant pillar of cloud that has been going in front of everyone, it moves to the camp and it stops on top of that room. 
And they say you can hear God talking to you. Moses would sit there on one side of this giant curtain and you would hear God talking to him. And you set a sacrifice out on the altar and fire would come out from behind the curtain and consume it. God is right there. God and man can dwell together. Again, not, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's, a, it's the room in the nuclear reactor. You can't go in there. You'll die. There's got to be safety procedures and lead walls and all this stuff. There's got to be protection. That's the holy place. It protects us from God and God from us. So you don't die when you're in his presence. They take the tabernacle and they make the temple. It's the exact same building, the exact same plan, exact same purpose. Now it's a permanent room. They're building the place where God dwells. And God said all the way back in the time of Abraham, 2000 BC, he told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and your people are going to be a light to the Gentiles. And you read the prophets and they talk about Assyria coming to Israel to meet God and Egypt coming to Israel. And God talks about his desires to say, Israel, my people, and Egypt, my people, and Assyria, my people, they're all going to come and meet him there. And Solomon's temple, which is unbelievably magnificent, is a complete failure. Nobody comes. The Jews don't face outward. They're not, they're not working with the nations, inviting them in. They're completely insular. Solomon's temple, for all its power, is a failure. And yet, humanly, it is clearly the winner. It is beautiful. It is magnificent. It is, has gold and jewels and silver. and It's incredible. It sits up there on the highest point in Jerusalem, which is on top of a hill. They say you can see it any direction you come from for miles. And because it's covered with gold, the sun glints off it all the time. It's incredible. And it's a failure. The nations don't come. The Jews don't invite them. God is trying to dwell with people and reach out to them. And it's not working. And so he has them build the temple again. And it's a garage compared to what Solomon built. By any possible human measure, this is called the second temple. The second temple is nothing compared to Solomon's temple when they first build it. It, 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 it's, It's literally like the garage off the palace. There is only one way in which this temple is superior. God. God planned to use it. One day, God said, What every nation desires is coming. And in this temple, not in Solomon's temple, in this temple, I will grant peace. This is 520 BC. In about 30 AD, 550 years, Jesus dies outside on a cross. And that curtain that kept radioactive God from mortal humans, it rips in half from top to bottom like some giant grabbed and went, And God is not constrained anymore. He doesn't need walls of lead to protect him. He's not radioactive to us. We don't die when we get in his presence anymore because Jesus has taken all of that. He's absorbed it. All that would kill us, Jesus has absorbed himself. And now God is free from that room. 
and he is out among people again. In this place, God says, not in that temple. 500 years ago, this temple, the one you're building, I will grant peace. But by every possible human comparison, this temple was an abject failure. And Solomon's temple was great. And in God's world, it is the complete opposite. This temple is great. This is where God will grant peace to the world. This is where that promise to Abraham that you will be a light to the Gentiles, that all the nations will know me. This is where it starts. When that curtain in that little room that they built, looking at, wondering, why are we this? Why are we doing this? This is nothing like the way it used to be. This is not the way I expected. When that curtain rips apart and God is no longer radioactive to mankind, this little temple, we don't obey because we see greatness in the future. We don't obey because we have some idea of how God is going to use this. We don't obey and do what the Lord tells us to do, whether it's because we read it in scripture or, you know, Terrell comes up and talks about going to Guatemala and you feel that nudge inside you that's like God's spirit saying, hey, I want you to do that. We don't go because we look down the road and say, oh, it's going to be glorious. Oh, God is going to use this. Yes, yes, he is. Would you ever If you were building this temple, looking at it compared to what the old temple looked like, would you ever have thought this building is going to be infinitely more glorious than Solomon's 45,000 pounds of gold? Who would ever have thought that? We don't obey because we know how God is going to use it and we know how it's going to work out and we have dreams of greatness. We obey because God knows what he's doing. Because God is taking the long view. We obey because the Lord tells us to obey. And wow, normally you don't get this. Normally God does not peel back the veil to the future and say, hey, let me tell you, you think Solomon's temple was a big deal? You have no idea what I am going to do in this little room. You have no idea. We obey what God gives us to obey because he knows what he's doing. He doesn't promise us success. In any way, we measure success because by any human measure, this temple is not a success. But in his kingdom, in his kingdom, that that temple is one of the most significant things that ever happened in human history. Maybe, I mean, short of the cross, maybe the most significant thing. If God came to you and said, you choose, you can be great. You can be famous. You can be known. Everything you touch will turn to gold. Everyone will know your name. Everything you do will be feted. But in my kingdom, you'll be a nobody. No, you, no one will become a Christian because of you. You won't make any disciples, right? You'll be famous. You'll be followed. You'll be a big deal. 
but you will have no eternal significance. Or he came to you and said, you can be a nobody. You can be absolutely on. No one will know your name. You will never be famous. You will never be great. People will never speak of you. Oh, but in my kingdom, in my kingdom, you're going to be somebody I talk about. You're going to be somebody that I say to the angels, have you considered my servant? You are going to be somebody that does make disciples, that does influence the world for me. What would you take? Seriously, that's a totally serious question. What would you take? Would you take temporal riches, power, and fame, or would you take eternal significance? If you want temporal, temporal power and fame, you're going to be very disappointed in this church because we're not doing that. We're not headed that way. That is not what is important here. Right? You sit in our prayer meetings with staff. You'll hear the same thing over and over again. God, we don't care this Sunday if anyone remembers where they went to church. We don't care if they remember who played the music or who preached the sermon. We want them to walk out of this building saying, Oh my gosh, God is real. We want them to go to lunch. And if someone says, them, where'd you go to church? We don't care what they answer. We want them to say, you, you wouldn't, I, it, it, it's all true. Like he's really, he's really there. Like I, I talked to him. It, it's all real. We are not interested in fame or fortune or power or celebrity, we are not interested in Solomon's temple. We don't have 45,000 pounds of gold to begin with. If we did, that's not how we would use it. We are interested in the things of the kingdom. You need to be interested in the things of the kingdom. If you are not interested in things of the kingdom, you're not going to be happy in this church because we're not doing tons of stuff. We are focused on discipleship. And we're going to bug you to be focused on discipleship. We're going to hound you to be focused on discipleship. And if God tells you to do something, then you do it. There's a church about a mile and a half that way that we are pouring resources into to help them prosper. Why? would you help a church right next door? Because the world needs more good churches. Oh my gosh, the world needs more good churches. There's like 100,000 people within a mile or two of us. There is plenty of room. I would put a church all along Dunwoody Club. Put it like every, every couple yards, put a new church. The world needs churches that preach the gospel. The world needs churches that tell people, obey. Yes, I get it. It's hard. Yes, I understand. It doesn't look like much now. Folks, it was 550 years before this happened. No one here saw it. They just kept at it. They just kept building that little tiny temple. They just kept piling up rocks and piling up oak instead of cedar and taking whatever little amounts of gold they had, right? This temple, oh yeah, you could see the wood in this temple. It was not covered with gold. None of these people saw it. None of their children saw it. None of their children's children saw it. It was 550 years. 
But every single one of us who knows Jesus sits here in part because they built that temple. Because they obeyed in the midst of adversity and in the midst of struggle. That's who we are going to be. That's who we are. That's who we will continue to be. If you don't want that, you're not going to be happy here. But if you do want that, wow, then do it. Is there anywhere God has called you to obey? And you're looking at it going like, oh, this is stupid. There's nothing happening here. This doesn't work. God, what are you doing? God, I'm spending my money on this and nothing's happening. I'm spending my time on this and nothing's happened. I spent 20 years of my life to translate the Bible and nobody wants it. God, what are you doing? I don't know. Oh, but I guarantee you he's doing something. I guarantee you we will stand in eternity and find out all these things that were going on. You had no idea. Why did God call me to do that? Why did God ask for that? Why did God make? I don't see anything. Neither did they. But wow, it was coming. And it is coming for you. And it is coming one day for this church. We are people who obey him because he tells us to obey. And when he tells us to do things, they're like, wow, that's really stupid, God. I got no trouble telling God I think his ideas are stupid. And then you do them, right? That's how you approach God. God, I don't get it. That makes no sense. That's a terrible idea. When do I start? That's how the people of old talk to God. That's who we are going to be. That's who you need to be. People who obey. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for you. Is there anywhere in your life that God has called you to things? You're not doing them. I'm going to say that every week because it's true every week. Is there anywhere God has called you to things? And you're like, that's dumb. I'm not going to get it. Nothing's going to happen. It's not working. I tried it for a while. It isn't. Just keep obeying. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you. I so, so appreciate that you pull back the curtain for these people and for us. That, that we see that we get to look back thousands of years later and see what you did. We know when you said you will grant peace. Oh my gosh, we know what that means. We know what's going to happen in that room. Jesus, we know what you're going to do. I, I, I can't imagine they had a clue what you were talking about. They just had to trust you. That one day, this rinky-dink little temple made out of rubble and pine trees was someday going to be glorious because you said it would be. Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters, for any of us who have started to obey and found it hard and not worth it, who have started to obey and said, why am I doing this? This is stupid. Nothing's happening This is tiny. It's unimportant. I thought this would go better. I thought this would be bigger. Lord, I pray for us. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for me. We want to be people who obey you because you have said so. And you know what's going on. You are the only one in this room who knows what's going to happen in the future. Jesus, we want to be people who obey you because you have told us to, and we trust you. Just like what you said to these people, I am with you. This is part of a plan I set in motion 900 years ago 
when I brought you out of Egypt, then 500 years from now, I will culminate it. Jesus, we want to be people who believe you because you are at work, because we know what the scriptures tell us. One day you will crack the sky open and every knee on this planet will go down before you and every mouth will confess that you are Lord. We know that day is coming and we are honored to be part of it. Jesus, help us be people who obey who obey with our minds and our hearts, who obey with our souls, who obey with our hands and our feet and our checkbooks. Help us to be people who obey because you have said so. And and that's enough for us. You are with us. You promised us that. You said that before you went back into heaven. You You would always be with us until the end of time itself. Jesus, make us, help us, work in us. We want to be people who obey, and we want to be a church who obeys. And Lord, we pray this in your name because we have no, no other way to possibly do this except your spirit at work in us, your your word speaking to us like you spoke through Haggai. I'm with you. Be strong. I'm at work. Keep going. Don't quit. Jesus, help us. Help us to be those people. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, we close this time as we always do. We, we, we take communion, the, the Lord's Supper, this, this service that Jesus himself instituted, that he told us to do this so we would remember. Because, wow, it is easy to forget. I mean, I work in the church. I'll be here in the morning in the office, and I'll still forget. It's easy to forget that it is his plan. He is working all this out, that he did this. So there are stations in all four corners. They've each got the bread and the cup. There's one down here that has gluten-free if you need it. I'm going to pray over us, and then when I'm done, get up, go and get the bread, get the cup, bring it back to your seats. I'll lead us. We will remind ourselves together of Jesus, that this is all because of Jesus. I mean, if, if, if this is just made up in a story, then, then don't bother. There are much, gosh, you're at the wrong DCC. If this isn't real, you want to be at Dunwoody Country Club because the food is way better and they won't harangue you. But if this is true, oh, then we want to obey. So I'm going to pray over us. Go get the elements, bring them back to the seat. Now, this is the only part of the service. If you are not a Christian, if you do not consider yourself a follower of Christ, please don't come and take these. This is only for people who say Jesus is Lord. It's to remember what he has done for us. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, then that's not something you need to be remembering. That's something you need to decide. You need to decide that you want him to be your Lord. If you have decided that, and if you just decided that here, then please join us. Otherwise, hang in your seat for a minute. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. We always say that here. (laughs) Thank you. you. You did this. This is you. This is your plan. You know, they, they could stack the stones up and cut the wood and, and build the temple, but, but it's still just a building. It's you who started this back with your people in Egypt 900 years before Haggai ever spoke to them. And it's you who continue to work it out until you come and you make peace in your own body. You, know, you, you didn't tell them through Haggai how you were going to do that, but we know you did it through your body and your blood, you gave yourself for us 
all that radiation that would kill us because we're no longer equipped to stand there. You, you healed all that in us. You changed all that. Thank you. We remember, Lord. We do exactly what you have told us. We remember. So Holy Spirit, as we, as we get in line, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, as we sit back down, speak to us, remind us, nourish us in the body and blood of Christ. We pray this in your name, Jesus, always in your name. Amen.